You are listening to the Enormo Cast. Climbing is our playground, basically, and we use it, and we should treat it like we treat our house. Pienso que es importante para para disfrutar de la naturaleza con otros escaladores. This is awesome. This is connecting to the community. This is connecting to nature. Um, I want to go back to that every time. This weekend at the Rock Project, there was a lot of things that I learned. Minimizing your impact, having that be part of the conversation around climbing, along with this is the route I want to do. This is the gear I need. Understanding that I have an impact, that one person has an impact. I think being a responsible user means being aware, being aware of people around you, being aware of your surroundings, being aware of your impact. I'm leaving no trace, and I'm not bothering their surroundings. There are a lot of climbers out there that care, but they don't know how to get involved. Easy way is to get involved with your local climbing organization and the Access Fund, who are working on a national and local level to make sure we can keep climbing areas open and conserve the climbing environment. For more information about the Black Diamond Rock Project and the Pact from the Access Fund, go to BlackDiamondEquipment.com or AccessFund.org. We're all in this together, folks. It's time to do everything we can to protect our climbing areas. Listen, uh, uh, where are you playing in town? Are you playing here? We're doing the uh, Enormo Dome, whatever it is. It's terrific. Oh, it's yeah, the big place. That's, it out. That's a big nice. place. You sold oh, it out. Out. I'll say, you really should. Look, you better get up there before you panic. Those pens are loose. You're very good. I have really enjoyed having them with you. I don't think so. But we shall continue with style. Today's show is brought to you by Black Diamond Equipment with support from Maxim Ropes. And now, La Sportiva has joined the Enormo Nation as a premier sponsor. And of course, don't forget Bonfire Coffee. Go to bonfirecoffee.com, enter Enormo at checkout to get a discount on great coffee and to help out the Enormo cast. Please support all of our great sponsors and let them know that you love them. And now back to the show. Hello and welcome to the Enormous Cast. This is your host, Chris Caloose. It is Friday, May 22nd, about 10.30 Mountain Standard Time. This is episode 81 a conversation with Peter Croft. Yes, Peter Croft. As you will hear in the interview, I fawn all over Peter Croft. Peter Croft, he was a hero of mine. He was an inspiration to anybody that was climbing in the late 80s, early 90s, and beyond. Peter Croft. That's all I got to say about that. Whew, Peter Croft on the show today. It's a long one, so I'm going to make this quick. How quick? This quick. Support our sponsors, Black Diamond, Sportiva, Bonfire Coffee, Maxim Ropes. They support the Enormacast. You need to support them. Let them know. If you want to help out the Enormacast, go to enormacast.com. Click on the Help Out tab. 
Find out what you can do to help the Enormacast right there. Do it. I'm going to Lander, Climbing Fest, climbersfestival.com for more information. I'm going to be there. Go there. Second weekend in July. Find it. Touch it. Love it. The Enormacast is partnered with climbingzine.com. If you like what the Enormacast does, you will like what they do. So go check it out. Climbingzine.com. Awesome stuff over there. Climbingzine.com. Okay, that's our business. Huh? That was pretty quick. But I do have to preface the show just a little bit. Okay. I haven't sort of been in front of one of my heroes this big since I was sitting with Randy Levitt quite a long time ago at this point, a couple years ago. I was super excited to track down Peter Croft and the conversation was amazing. So forthcoming, such a friendly guy, so stoked. It was awesome to sit across the uh, little coffee table. We were sitting in his hotel room. When I started climbing, Peter Croft was the man. He still is the man. If anybody listening to this doesn't know who Peter Croft is, well, welcome to the Enormacast. This is what I'm here for, to get you filled in on the greats. And he is indeed one of the greats. But look, folks, I've met some of my heroes over the years. And you know, the experience wasn't all that great sometimes. And some of my other heroes I've just simply grown out of. As the years go by and I gain a little wisdom, I'm like, that guy's not that amazing. She's not that awesome. I can do plenty of those things. But none of this applies to Peter Croft. First of all, he's an amazing gentleman and a great guy to talk to. A lot of fun to sit across the coffee table with. And more importantly, his attitude toward climbing hasn't changed a lick He still loves it. He's still excited about it. And to sit with him in the same room and talk for an hour and a half made me more excited about climbing. I couldn't wait to get out there. I couldn't wait to emulate his attitude and just go for it on whatever rock presented itself. Hopefully you'll feel that way too. And here's the thing I realized is that without this podcast, I wouldn't have sat across and quizzed him and grilled him like I did. I mean, I wouldn't just have gone to his house on my own and said, hey, can I talk to you for an hour and a half about all the things you've climbed? So that's really cool. So thanks for that, you guys, because without you, this podcast wouldn't still exist without your support. So I appreciate that. And I hope you enjoy this incredible conversation that I had with Peter Croft. For nearly a decade now, La Sportiva Miras have been my go-to shoe for sport, long routes, and I even sent my latest thin crack project using the wonderfully precise toe of these magic shoes. And though the Mira is the one shoe to rule them all, nowadays I round out the quiver with katanas and testerosis. The quality, the craftsmanship, and the performance of La Sportiva shoes is simply the best. In fact, I have literally taken new katanas from the box, smelled them, and then compulsively rubbed them on my face. It's really quite breathtaking. You should try it. And now, as if the legacy of the Mega, the Calculator, the Mythos, and the TC Pro was not legend enough, La Sportiva introduces the Genius, a high-performance shoe so advanced you might not feel worthy of its charms. But I assure you, my friend, you're good enough, you're smart enough, and, well, people will want to belay you in the Genius. So to luxuriate in Italian craftsmanship and to check out La Sportiva's full line Climbing shoes, mountaineering boots, approach shoes, and trail running shoes. Go to sportiva.com or your nearest climbing retailer. Oh, 
and don't let them catch you rubbing them on your face. Because that's just messed up. Don't say anything embarrassing because you're being recorded now. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that never happens when <laughs> I'm in a position of potential embarrassment. Cool. So um, I'm sitting in the Bonnie Springs Hotel in, in Red Rocks. Peter Croft here was polite enough to invite me over to his hotel room to do an interview. I'm super stoked to be here. Thanks for having me, Peter. How are you? Good, thanks. You Glad had you're a, here. You had an okay day? Like... Working out in the in the hot sun. Um, oh, you bet. Getting stinking hot, hanging out with hundreds of people. Sure. Yeah. Finest thing. You love the, that sort of oh, thing. Oh, yeah. It's just my style. <laughs> <laughs> um, Peter's here for the uh, Red Rock Rendezvous, as I am, and um, I sort of stalked him enough to get him to... Uh, <laughs> To relent, he he actually tried to wiggle out the other day, but um, <laughs> but I got him. So I'm super excited. I'd like to kind of open with a little bit of my background because uh, I'm going to be sort of fanboyish on you here because you're sort of you fit into the wheelhouse of right when I started climbing because I started climbing in 1989, and uh, it's sort of hard to you know wrap the head around it. But there were basically like three sources of climbing media. There was Climbing Magazine, there was Rock and Ice Magazine, and that was actually really new, I think. And then, you know, the occasional, like, VHS Masters of Stone, if you could get your hands on one, or whatever, mm -hmm. the, the videos that were coming out. And, you know, this was a time when, when, you know, you had done some seriously significant ascents, and I had no idea what, what they really meant, but I just knew that there were these pictures of you all over the place and knowing a little bit about you now and, and having our conversation we just had like you probably weren't even that comfortable with that but but you were a you know a bona fide kind of climbing celebrity and when I came into climbing it was sort of pre-sport climbing and you were in a lot of ways were this consummate traditional free climber and so my friends and I at least in our little group took a lot of sort of points from what your image was and what you were doing, um, which I appreciate. And furthermore, a few years later, after I was a, you know, I'd climbed a lot and I, and I was an experienced climber, I saw you do a slideshow at, at Neptune Mountaineering um, about a trip to Pakistan, more or less. Mm -hmm. um, so that would have been what, like the mid-late 90s, maybe? Yeah. Like maybe it was yeah. like the Cherakusa yeah. Valley or then, something like yeah, that? Yeah, then it would have been like um, around the year 2000. Yeah, so like I've been climbing a long time and... And I was a pretty serious kid. Like, we talked about this. Like, I, I took climbing really seriously, you know. Mm -hmm. And I just remember having a revelation at that that slideshow because you, like, exuded this exuberance about climbing. Um, you know, you were one of the most accomplished free climbers that I'd ever seen give a show or anything else. I mean, and yet you were, you, like, had this, like, overwhelming exuberance about the climbing and you told some story about you know, just sneaking away from camp and free soloing some big grand route and having some big mm. flake rip out on you. Do, does this have any recollection for you? Well, yeah. I may have made it I've up had in my a, head. No, I've had a few incidents like that. There's definitely one up in Canada, way out in the middle of nowhere, up in the mountains, where, yeah, a big flake came out and, yeah, it was... I mean, I, I may have, like, filled in all sorts of exciting uh, gaps. Well, I mean... I've had, like I say, I've had situations like that. One in particular was up in Canada, out in the middle of this semi-wilderness, and it was like a new route, and this big flake came out, and 
I had to do a bunch of things to stop from being knocked off the cliff. That's the and story. It was, yeah. it was raining and That's there it. was Then you no, climbed on your knees, right? Yeah, up higher right, kind of tell uh, the story. Yeah, well at any rate, I was I was with this guy and he had invited me on this trip. We helicoptered into the middle of nowhere. I couldn't find it on a map now. And uh, so we wanted to do a bunch of first ascents and so I did some first ascents of peaks with him. And then as we were hiking, we were basically hiking and climbing peaks, all the new routes because nobody had ever been there before, on our way out to this inlet where we are going to be picked up by seaplane. And on the way, I saw this beautiful buttress, maybe like 1,500 feet high, something like that. And I asked my buddy if he wanted to go on that, and he goes, no way. He says, I'm not a technical climber like that. And I'm like, it was, it was one of these dream buttresses that it's just screaming to be climbed, but nobody had ever seen it before. And so I head off for it, and I've only got like, the one day we have to keep on going after that and so i head off uh, off towards it and it, the clouds have moved in and i can barely find the base of the thing and so i find the base pack my mountain boots into my pack and strap my ice axe on the back and and start climbing and right away it's real deal climbing and you know it's like five nine pretty solid five ten and uh, i get maybe a few hundred feet up and then it starts raining and then it starts raining harder and uh, that was when I ran into that flake that you mentioned. And I was hand jamming past it. And as I'm climbing past it, the pressure of my hand jam loosens the flake just a little bit. It's maybe like three, three and a half feet high. And some of the, the gravel kind of dribbles out on the side of it. Now it's, make, it's become looser because of that. And I'm trying to move past it and there's more stuff coming out. It's just getting looser and looser. And I realized the whole thing's ready to rotate out and just, it's like I said, it's maybe three feet high and maybe six inches thick and it goes way back into the crack. But it just wants to rotate out like a big saw blade. And so I realized I, I can't push it back in. It won't stay. I can't climb down. It'll just come out on top of me. And so I reach above the flake and the crack narrows back down to a finger size, about half inch wide. And I reach up and it's just it's raining and my hair's going in my face and I just drive my fingers in as deep as I can into this finger lock goes up to about the second knuckle and just really torque it in there it's everything's soaking wet and I I loosen my foot jams so that I can kick them out in a second and I I play with the flake a little bit with my chest just to loosen it a little bit more because I'm hoping it can just come out really fast and then I drive the fit my upper hand the finger jam in is as well as I can, take my right hand out real quick and palm against the main cliff and shove my body out. I just swing my body out. The flake rotates out like a saw blade, <laughs> spin it out into space, and I swing back in and my body slams back against the rock and I can hear the flake crashing down below. And for a while, I'm just hanging there off this finger lock and my eyes are closed shut because I just I can't bear to look at the flake because it's kind of a real event happening and, sure. and kind of the real deal and then event you know i can smell the granite dust coming up and i look down and see what's going on and then i'm kind of like well you know it's just like i could go down now if i really wanted to but the bad part potentially is over so maybe i'll just keep going and see how it goes sure yeah of and, course i mean why not right yeah, yeah. why not well, what, <laughs> well what at any worst rate could happen that was the way my mind right. rolled at that point so then I, I keep on going and, you know, things get pretty cruisy for a while and I'm climbing up these cracks. It's wet and everything, but, you know, it's probably no harder than about 5'9". 
And then I get to this place where everywhere I go, the, the, the crack systems just kind of die out. And I'm kind of like, oh, geez, I'm going to have to down climb from here. I'm most of the way up this thing. And so then I finally take the, the last option and I climb up and I'm like, wow, this would go if it was dry. But it's like this, it, in dry, if it was dry conditions, it would be like a 5-8 slab. There's these weird friction dishes that are going up it. And I'm like, if it was dry, yeah, but that's a pretty big if. I try to get my foot up into one of these dishes and try to put some weight on it, and it immediately skids out. I'm standing on like a pretty small edge, maybe like two feet by one foot. And so if I, if I slip off the first move, I can stop myself. But, you know, I go like a couple moves off, I'm not going to be able to stop myself. So I'm trying a few times, my feet, the rubber won't stick. And I'm wearing uh, polypropylene long johns. So then I got this idea that, you know, the rubber won't stick, but the long johns might. And so I tried putting a knee into one of these little friction scoops and I stood halfway up it and it stuck. And at that point, that was probably where my heart started beating harder than even with the kind of more epic section down below, I realized this could work. And it was about 40 feet of these friction dishes, five, eight friction dishes. And I went for it all on my knees. And you know, this is like classic situation. There's all these cardinal rules you never do in climbing. Sure. You never use your knees. No, it's bad form. Yeah. It's just, you, that's just terrible. You, not what you do. And that was the thing that saved me. Just climbing on my knees like a dog and, and uh, got to that section and kept on going to the summit and eventually got back down to my buddy who was just having a nap and didn't know what had happened. And it was, well, again, one of those situations, uh, I guess with soloing, all too often, particularly with big solos, you come back and you're like, did I dream that? It has a dream-like quality. You can't share it with anybody. It's really just about you. And the intensity has this kind of, because there's this flow state you get into, it does feel a little bit like a dream, which right. means that it's just for you. Right. You know, you can't, you can't properly communicate it to uh-huh. other people. Had he heard the, 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 the rock fall? Was he close uh, enough? No, no, he was, was it was a few miles oh, okay. to, just to get from our camp right. up to the base of this thing. So he had no idea whether it was good or bad. Or mm-hmm. He definitely had the thought that what if Peter doesn't come back? Like, right. what do I do? We had no radios. Sure. There was no helicopter. It would have been like approximately a week before somebody could have dropped a rope to me. So that would have probably not worked. Yeah, no. And this is like some route that... That basically is... Nobody will ever do again. No, it's gone. You probably Doubt anybody will ever find it again. It's, right. But it was just one of the coolest things I've done. If they I'd did done. do it, they w- they'd think it was an F.A. anyway. Yeah. Good, so. And good for them. Good mm-hmm. for them. They'd look at that one rock scar where the flake came out and just like, oh, I wonder where that came out. <laughs> well, you, you were just talking a little bit about soloing, and, and I want to get into that, but I kind of want to go back to this idea that I, I was mentioning about the way you're... Even just telling that story just now, like, brought me back because that was the exact story. That was uh-huh. what I was talking about, and you know, I it, it definitely changed me a little bit in that, you know, again, I was sort of serious, and I and I just kind of realized like this exuberance, this fun that you kind of had, or at least you you projected mm-hmm. with with the way you climbed, and you were very animated on stage, or mm-hmm. it wasn't stage, you know, it was Neptune yeah, yeah. in front of us, yeah, and. Uh, you know, it was, a, it was an affecting thing, and I kind of wanted to ask you about that because keeping an eye on sort of what you've been doing since then and, and your whole mm-hmm. climbing career, I feel like you haven't really lost much of that. And a lot mm-hmm. of climbers go through, you know, various phases in their career and maybe get more serious or less serious. And you're a very serious climber, obviously. You, you, you go for it, but 
can you sort of talk a little bit about your approach and, and whether or not, maybe I'm off base here. No, about no, what, no what you're, you're not uh, off base at all. I take climbing really seriously, but I don't take myself seriously. Okay. And I think that's at least a big part of the difference. I think, for instance, people who are really competitive in climbing and they take themselves really seriously, they feel like they're losing an edge all too often. They quit climbing. Right. They're just done. Just like they can't have that edge. They can't have that feel like they're that one-upmanship. They're kind of out of there. And uh, for me, it's, it's uh, I mean, yeah, you know, you get ego gratification when your buddies slap you on the back and say, man, good job. But at the same time, it's, it's the doing. It's the reasons behind it. Why are you there? Like, in other words, would you, go, would you try this hard? You, you listen to that sound in the background? Yeah, that's that's that one of the cool things about Bonnie Springs is the peacocks. Oh, no, there's peacocks. Oh. And they just cruise around the neighborhood. They're not... I mean, they actually have a petting zoo, but there's also a stack of peacocks that just cruise around the neighborhood here, oh. making that weird cat yeah, it sound. Like a cat I know. It's like out of a Tarzan movie. That's why I stay here. So at any rate, if, if it's all about looking to be the most badass, if you feel like you've gone from first place down to third place, well, a lot of people quit climbing forever. Mm-hmm. They take up golf. They're just gone. And for me... I remember the first number of years that I climbed, I wanted to be good enough to be called a climber. I never thought I'd climb 5'10". Right. I thought I was just like a total lummox, not very coordinated. Um, I just knew I just loved it more than anything. And I think that was... It, I didn't get into climbing because I thought, wow, I have an aptitude for this. I could be good. It was like I hated baseball. I hated hockey. I tried doing those things because my friends did them, but I just never connected with the whole competitive sport thing. So the competitiveness, as much as we all have a certain amount of competitive juices running through our veins, that part never did it for me. I, I, don't, I think it's, it's thought of as this great thing in, in Western society. Sometimes it brings out the best, but a lot of times it brings out the worst. Friends turn on friends, and I don't necessarily think it, it's, it's such a great thing. Competitiveness with ourselves you know, an ego, that can be, the competitiveness can be good, ego can be good, but if it's only if it's under control. Mm-hmm. And um, for me, way more than any of that, it was the doing. Right. I just, as soon as I went climbing, and it was obviously a very low level. Well, can, it you, was, can you tell, tell me about that? Like what, what, it, what yeah, how well, you started? Well, I, I had no interest in climbing because like most of the general public, it was kind of like that view of... Uh, like watching cliffhanger you know it's just like death-defying like a jock sport you know it was like bullfighting like way too aggro and uh macho and i just had no interest it seemed like it it was kind of like a suicidal endeavor Mm -hmm. and and uh it the face of it that the general media portrays was not something i was interested in and the way I got into it, I was into hiking up in the mountains, and then this friend... And where, um, you, where did you grow up? In Western Canada. Okay. Western Canada, Vancouver Island. Okay. Anyway, this one friend of mine who was into hiking, he wasn't necessarily into climbing, but he had read this one climbing book called I Chose to Climb by Chris Bonington. Mm-hmm. And uh, he says, man, you should check this out. It's a really good book. And I'm like, yeah, I'm not interested in climbing. That sounds stupid. And he says, no, you should check it out. It's a good adventure book. And that was the key for me, because when I was a little kid... You know, at the beginning of every week, I'd run to the store, get the new TV guide, and I would take a felt pen and mark all the movies marked adventure. 
Mm -hmm. Dramas I had no interest in. Comedies, not really much more. But adventure, that was my thing. And so when he said it was a good adventure book, I figured, okay, I'll, I'll read it just for, for that sake. And so I read the book, and I'm like, I got to try this. This could be what I've been looking for, because I never connected with any activity. And then I tried climbing, and the first day it was, I've never had that aha moment in my life. In school, in college, just kind of like drifting. Mm-hmm. Didn't, could never figure anything out. And then I tried climbing, and that was the... That was that moment. And and actually back to to college and trying to find my way. And this is a big part of the whole normal path that a lot of people take in their schooling and why I got disillusioned with it. I was in college for a couple of years and I took this two-day aptitude test. So it wasn't just like a little short quiz. I mean, it was pretty involved. Two eight-hour days doing this aptitude test. Number one thing they said that I should be was a funeral director. (laughs) I mean, like, I mean, if they said the salary was ten million a year, just be like, there's no way. <laughs> I'd rather, you know, d- d- dumpster dive for, you know, soda cans. That's and, absurd. I know. Seriously, that's when I dropped out of college. You're way too enthusiastic to be a funeral director. <laughs> I mean, just from the creep out factor, I, like, I just, I, I think he's kind of glad he died. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, but yeah, yeah. that was so, so yeah. But, but, but yeah, so that's how I, I got into climbing. I found that book. You know, and it's funny how things sort of come full circle. So this guy, Chris Bonnigan, famous British mountaineer, he gets knighted by the Queen and, you know, all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. Pretty famous guy. And the part of that book that really resonated the most was he talked about climbing all kinds of places. And one of them was in the Dolomites. That was the part that really just, for whatever reason, just stuck in my mind as being like, that just sounds awesome. Big storms, huge rock climbs, epic adventures. Um, and then, you know, at the end of the day, you know, hanging out in some storm-lashed hut, you know, drinking wine and toasting to your success. So I get into climbing. I've been climbing for a bunch of time. And uh, then, so this one time, I think it was, I think it was in 2000, I don't know, 2005. I just, anyway, sometimes I get invited over to this mountaineering conference over in Europe. And one of the guys there is Chris Bonington. Okay, so then, and I had seen him before and whatever, but so at the end of this conference, there was like tons of people there from all over the world. And I don't know why, but they invited just a handful of us to go climbing in the Dolomites. Chris Bonington being one of them and me being another one of the people. And so I get to go climbing. My first time actually climbing in the Dolomites is with Chris Bonington going up on some of these climbs. And I remember getting back to the hut at the Sella Pass and I'm hanging out with Chris Bonhue and a few other climbers. Storms just dumping outside. We've had this killer climb outside. We're drinking wine and we're, I'm swapping stories with Chris Bonington, the reason I got into climbing. Speaking of like a dream state, right? Oh, <laughs> fully. Like, wait, is this happening? And, you know, I'm asking him about the whole, you know, you know, being knighted and does that make you actually a knight? And I mean, it was just like right. this surreal conversation yeah like and, he, the, and he's just the coolest guy like just i mean just in the way that he has that childlike exuberance that you were talking about mm-hmm. he has that and you know he's old enough to be my dad right just you know super cool the stuff that happens in climbing yeah, in the movie of it your your five-year-old self will wake up 
with the, yeah. with the book, with like his arms wrapped around the book, right? Yeah. After you drink wine with Chris Bonington. Yeah. You know, it's so funny how we go into all these situations. We travel to the other side of the world to go do these climbs. And then when all is said and done, we, yeah, we remember the climbs and everything, but so much. It's the human interactions, mm-hmm. you know, the sunburned smile of your buddy, you know, and you're, you're just like hanging out on, t- on the first ascent on some unnamed peak in the middle of Pakistan or, or some rock climb in, you know, Yosemite Valley or whatever it is. But, you know, the climbs themselves, they're awesome. And we so often, that's what attracts us. That, that's what drives us. And the stuff that really makes it come alive is, you know, the people we do them with. And, you know, and yeah, I've done a bunch of soloing and I really enjoy that. But boy, so often it is uh, the stuff that makes it human, that makes these inanimate mountains and, and rock climbs um, mean something like in a real uh, emotional way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let me uh, kind of fast forward a little bit. You're, you're as much as anything, at least in the States. In fact, most people, I think a lot of people don't know you're Canadian. Um, cause you're I try to hide that. Yeah. <laughs> I've lost the saying A all the time. That took me a long time, by the way. Pretty don't proud of that. Don't say that. I'm going to get emails. <laughs> <laughs> your, your Canadian fans are, are aghast right now. But, uh, you know, here in the States and I think in the world, you're, you're definitely associated with Yosemite climbing. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in my, again, in my era... You were living there. You were mm-hmm. you were full yeah. on engrossed. Yeah. You still climb there a great mm-hmm. deal. You guide yeah. there, all those sorts of things. Yeah. So, um, can you talk about like how that like when Yosemite came into your life? Like what it was like to to sort of yeah, realize but, that this is, this was the place you you'd yeah. found. Well, you, you know, a lot of people have talked about the idea of there being a number of golden ages in in climbing, mm-hmm. and I think there's different reasons for that. You know, like right now you could say that, wow, the whole idea that, you know, people are like looking at El Cap as a free climbing canvas, that's a golden age of a type. And, you know, people like, well, and especially Tommy Caldwell, you know, the stuff that he's been doing, and that's obviously been in the media a whole bunch. But but at different generations have had their, their golden age in Yosemite and Royal Robins, you know, you look at all those guys, you know, doing the first ascents of all those big walls. And so th- there's reasons why different people can call th- a certain period like the real golden age. And I don't know if there is really a, an actual golden age. I think there is several of them. But the reason that it really felt like it for me certainly wasn't because I was climbing there, but it was because it was the center of the climbing universe. Mm-hmm. If you were a climber, it didn't matter if you just wanted to do one pitch things or whatever, but if you lived in Japan or Germany or South Africa, that's where you had to go. Mm-hmm. It was the center of the universe. Now it's just a great rock climbing area, perhaps the greatest, mm-hmm. but it wasn't the center of the universe in the same way. And so... And about when, when did you first kind of start That would have been... Calling it... Le- the, 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 I was just starting climbing, and immediately that I started climbing, and partly because where I started climbing was Squamish, which is like the Canadian Yosemite. So it's all granite, and it's kind of like a, you know, Yosemite's smaller, ugly brother. Um, <laughs> but because it was of a similar right. sort, even more, it was kind of like, okay, well, you think you can handle it here? Okay, you really got to, you know, go to where it's really at, is, right. is Yosemite. It's the bigger, better. the weather's better, yep. all the different things. 
But then to show up there and, and there was so many people not thinking, yeah, this is another good rock climbing area. No, this is Mecca. Mm -hmm. This is where pilgrims come. There is no, there's nothing in second place. And to feel like you were lucky enough to be there at that time. And, you know, at any period in time, you know, the best climbers are considered kind of like climbing gods. But at that time, being in Mecca, being in heaven, and the top guys, they were the gods. Mm -hmm. And to just like be in their presence, like if I saw them in the parking lot, th they were too great a, like, their force field was so big, I had to walk way around them. So, so who are we talking to, about in Well, like area. Backer and right. Kauk. Right. You know, those guys, it was just like they were too awesome. I couldn't go near them. And it wasn't like I didn't like them. It was just like they were too rad. So you, I think that's been compressed into you being a real contemporary of those guys. But you were, you were no, a little after, a little oh, younger. Uh, only barely younger. Right. Um, but they had, but, they had created the, their own but, thing already. You know, I, I mean, I was basically of the mindset that just being a California climber meant that you were awesome. <laughs> at whatever level you were at. You, you were just awesome because you were California. And, and uh, to, to enter into that place, which I, I really felt, and all my friends did too. This was the center of the climbing universe. There was, every, everything else was kind of like a, a total backwater. You know, whether it was some area in France or Canada or wherever, it was such the place. You felt like it was... Uh, this was where it was all happening. This was where climbing was being forged mm -hmm. at, at the center of the universe. Right. And these were where the most important climbs, where the, all the most important advances were being made, even in areas that I wasn't necessarily that interested, like technical aid climbing. I've never really been it's too slow for me, and it's, I haven't really been that psyched. But all of rock climbing was emanating from Yosemite Valley. And now you can't really say that. Mm -hmm. in, in some aspects, you can say, well, it, it would, really it amounts to opinion. Right. But at that time, it was fact. Right. Just total fact. <laughs> it yeah. was cosmic law mm -hmm. that Yosemite is where all else came from. <laughs> I mean, it sounds ridiculous now to say that, but at that time, it really felt like that. I don't think it's ridiculous because we all still understand and we're still using and, and reveling in the mythology of that's come out of the last 50 years in Yosemite. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's not, it's, that didn't come from nowhere, that we, yeah. we still revere it. I mean, you know, and like you just said, like Tommy just kind of made us all wake up and oh. go, wow, it's yeah. still like this place, yeah. you know? Yeah, no, I mean, what he's done is just, you know, even before the, the Don Wall thing, right. it was still just like, holy crap, yeah. where he's taken mm -hmm. the whole big free climbs thing. I mean, right. it, yeah, just crazy. So let's talk about then. You, you, you're, you're talking about the early mid '80s. Is that when you turned yeah, up? Or well, even I, I, that? I turned up right at the end of the '70s. Okay. So I had just started climbing. Right. Yeah. Um, and you started passing whole seasons there. About when? yeah, pretty much as soon as I went, I I knew this is where I needed to be. Mm -hmm. So it was like I would go down each spring, and spend as long as I could until the money ran out, which is usually like you know, a month and a half or something, and then. You know, in summer, it's obviously really hot in Yosemite. You go back to Squamish and climb up there, and then I go back in the fall. So two good sessions, right. lengthy sessions, one in the spring, one in the fall. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, do some hideous construction job or whatever in the wintertime. Do you ever plant trees? That's a summer I, job, though, isn't it? Yes. 
Yeah, it is. And I wasn't tough enough to really handle it. It sounds brutal. On, I, we drove for like seven hours from Vancouver up to this place to go tree planting. And I went up there with a bunch of my friends, and they're really good at making tons of money at it. And so I show up, and I wake up my first morning there, and I got a real kink in my neck. And so I go tree planting for the day. And by the end of the day, the, the spasm is pulling my head off to one side, and I can barely work at all. The next morning I get up, and now it's pulled over even further. And I'm like Quasimodo, or I'm looking like a total gimp. And so I try to tree plant. Halfway through the day, my head is pulled all the way over. The spasm is so hard, my head's pulled over onto my shoulder. And my foreman's just like, Peter, I don't, I don't know if you're really built for this. <laughs> and so I'm like, yeah, I don't think I am either. <laughs> he says, well, you know, there's a guy who's driving back to Vancouver. I think, you know, you might want to think about just blowing this off. You got washed out. You got to go to the doctor. And I go, yeah, that sounds good to me. And so I, I jump on the truck, and halfway to Vancouver, the spasm totally goes away. <laughs> and I'm feeling just fine. My head's totally loose. And the guy's like, well, do you, do you want to go back? And I'm like, no, I think I, you know, something was, my body was telling me yeah, something. If you, I'm if not you built started for driving that. back, your head would slowly start going back yeah, to your shoulder. I'm, for I, sure. I'm sure, you know, maybe it was psychosomatic. But um, yeah, so I got out of there. And that was, I, I, I pulled off a whole day and a half and, you know, probably made $25 or something. Right. Well, let's talk about your climbing then as you were going through that. Again, my perspective, 89, like you're well into to, to this decade at that mm -hmm. point about in Yosemite. And this will probably embarrass you fully. But, you know, what you just said about Kyle Backer, like you would become one of those guys. Because, you know, even in the 90s when I showed up in Yosemite, I would have walked around you, you know. <laughs> in, in the same, I mean... You know, let's face it, you, you had Bonington, and in, in I've talked to other people where I've postulated this to them, not realizing that they themselves had become that person for, you know, uh -huh. for someone like me who's, who's yeah. a generation younger than you are. So let's talk about that progression. The 80s were really interesting in Yosemite. You guys were figuring out what free climbing was going to look like in terms of coming out of the hangdogging and coming mm -hmm. out of the mm -hmm. yo-yoing and... Mm -hmm. Where are the bolts going to go in, and are they going to go in, and are we even going to use these friends? I mean, mm -hmm. you were you were there soon yeah. enough to be yeah. like, yeah, figuring uh -huh. all that sort of stuff out. Sure. And yet, a lot of, a lot of ways, I see you at least again what I've been able to glean over the years, almost seeing a little bit separated from that. And going back to yeah. a little bit about what you said about taking climbing seriously but not yourself seriously. Yeah. Like those battles and all that stuff. I mean, is that a good perception? Yeah. Were you involved, no, I, 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 but not like... No, I, I, I think it is. And it, I sort of felt like I don't want to tell other people what to do. The best that you could hope for, I think the, the hardest you should push to make other people think in another way is to do by example, mm -hmm. you know, lead by example. And so, you know, if somebody thinks that your style resonates with them, well, then maybe they can take something out of it but as much as I've sometimes respected even um, bolt chopping by other people, I've never done it myself. Right. Um, there was this one hard finger crack in Yosemite that had been bolted. and The Van... Uh, Van Belladrome. Van Belladrome, yeah. right. Yeah, and so uh, this guy had sport bolted it, and it was a finger crack, and, and uh, I went to it and on-sighted it, and, and uh, a lot of people told me, oh, you should just chop the bolts. I'm like, no, that's, you know, it's just not me. I, right. I, again, I'm not 
dissing people who have chopped bolts because in certain circumstances bolts are just weird. Mm -hmm. Like if somebody bolted like some classic, some other classic uh, crack climb in Yosemite, outer limits or butterballs or something like that, well, you know, they'd be chopped and most people I think would probably agree that that was a good idea. But anyway, that wasn't my take on it. It was Mm -hmm. just like I figured, you know, if people took some kind of a positive message out of me doing it without the bolts. I mean, like when I did it, I saw the bolts, but I didn't take any quick draws. It was just, they weren't there as far as I was concerned. But the idea of going back and chopping them, um, for one thing, the bolts still being there, you know, that can be taken as a uh, a lesson or a message um, for positive or for negative. You might look at it and say, yeah, killer, you know, bolts beside a crack, that's the way it should be. Or you might kind of go, Man, that was like, that's what shouldn't be done in Yosemite. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's it, it definitely an argument to be made that I was, you know, too much of a chicken shit to, to chop the bolts. Right. But I've never felt, I guess, is enough of an authority to take that kind of action, mm-hmm. to chop other people's bolts. So are they still there? I haven't been there for years. Right. I did the climb the one time. Because I, I mean, I remember... I remember this, I remember the pictures, mm-hmm. and, it, and it occurs to me now that like, even like today, I mean, it was like a mini version of the internet, but you know, other people seem to almost make a bigger deal out of it than perhaps you did. Because yeah, I remember yeah. seeing that there was pictures of you on it and climbing uh, next to bolts with like, yeah. you know, TCUs in or whatever. Yeah. And uh, I wonder if they're still there. Yeah, I, I don't know. I was actually talking to some really sung boulder guy who went there to try it and he wanted to talk to me about how I did it or something. Oh, really? <laughs> but I didn't, you know, I just said, oh, you know, hope it was fun type thing. I didn't really think to ask about whether the bolts huh. were there. Ah, well, well, we'll do some research after the show. I'll get back okay. to everybody about that. <laughs> okay. um, so the other big thing, and, and you know, you, you were in an era where board climbing as it is now didn't really even exist yet. Mm-hmm. Bolts were being placed. Sometimes people were, you know, putting up what, Actually, today would probably not be considered a sport route, but mm-hmm. but a bolted route yeah. um, with with some controversy. But definitely more of a track climber. You're well known for being a crack climber, but also the soloing has always been a big part of your legacy. Mm-hmm. So was that just a natural thing that, you know, last night I was talking on stage with, and Libby Souter said that, mm-hmm. yeah, I asked her if she free sold, and she said, well, yeah, that's, you know, you live in Yosemite, and... Mm-hmm. It's the afternoon, and you want to go yeah. to the manure pile, and mm-hmm. that's what you do. Mm-hmm. You know, real natural progression, not like, you know, planting your flag in the in the ground. I'm going to be a soloist. Yeah. Um, was it something like that, or what? Where did the soloing come in? Because uh, you know, it was really just, um, you know, with with climbing. I, I'd like to think that I am a bit of a gourmet, but I'm also a lot of a gourmand. You know, I I, I want to do a lot of climbing. For me, taking rest days is pretty much torture. Um, I just, I love climbing all the time. And so early on in my climbing, my friends, they were really psyched, you know, mid-afternoon, you know, just getting stoned and going to the bakery. Mm-hmm. And I liked the bakery and I could party too, but I loved to climb. I liked the other stuff, but I loved to climb. And mid-afternoon was way too early to stop climbing. And so I remember this one afternoon, we were headed for the bakery, for sure. And, uh, I got them to, I was up in Squamish and I got them to drop me off underneath this one cliff. And I was probably climbing 5'11 at the time. And I hadn't sold it ever. 
and I got them to drop me off at this one cliff, and I went and soloed, like, I think it was maybe three roots. They're, like, all around five pitches, nothing harder than 5.7 or 5.8. And I went and did those, and I couldn't believe it. It just took, like, a few hours or a couple hours. I don't know what it was, but hardly any time, and I'd covered so much ground. It had nothing to do about pushing any kind of difficulty thing. It was just climbing. It had mm-hmm. nothing to do with the grades. And I was just like, this is like when you're a, a tiny little kid and you're dreaming about what it would be like to fly. That was the first time where I thought, this is just about like that. Right. It's about that cool to be able to do that much climbing with no fuss, just just the climbing. This the distilled climbing, no waiting for your belay partner or coiling ropes or placing gear. It's just the climbing. And it was just brilliant. And for the first first few years, you know, I really, it was, I was so, I was very slow to increase the difficulty. It was a super gradual thing because I don't like being scared. Mm-hmm. It's, so it was really just like slowly amping it up and, and always feeling like um, if I ever got to the top of a climb that I sold and I was tired at all, my forms were at all pumped, it was a failure. Okay. And I was really hard on myself. So... And then, so when I started doing bigger and harder climbs, um, if it, what I would, if I was going to do, say, a thousand foot climb, and it was say, five ten or five eleven or whatever, to do that, I felt like on a on a you know moderate day, I should be able to do three times that amount at the crags, just doing laps on stuff, and feel fine. So I would, I would make sure physically I was way more than capable. Mm-hmm. So if I got, anytime I've gotten the top of any big climb, and, and really, realistically, I can't remember any time that it, that did happen, but I always knew that if, if I felt like I was pushed, that was a failure. Okay. Regardless of whether I succeeded, that was a, and even if I didn't have a scary moment, if I got tired, that was a failure. So that was sort of the, the beginning and the progression. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to make you kind of tell the story again. And I, I know in the past you've, you've told it a hundred times. I've read it. But you, this, you know, one of the seminal climbs of your career, as far as outsiders looking at it. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, I'm sure, mm-hmm. have your own personal mm-hmm. seminal moments that maybe we don't even have never heard about. But is was soloing the Astroman. I was in 1987, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, you may not know, <laughs> remember, but that moment, I remember you speaking of it as as a bit, you know, of this moment of looking up at it and 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 deciding that. I can do this. Can you talk a little bit about that story at all? Do you remember? I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I, I remember it. Well, of course you remember the yeah. climb. I'm sorry. Yeah. In terms well, of just no, like... well, no, I mean, it's just like the dates and stuff. I've never been good at that. I, sure. I don't, I've done it a few, I've sold it a few times mm-hmm. and I seriously can't remember if it was three or four times. I know it was more than once. Right. But it was at least three, but it may have been more. Um, That's all right. There's things that I think I've sold that I don't, that I probably haven't. Because huh. I thought about soloing it so yeah. many times that I think you know I just I mean, sold it, which so, is fine. Like, some people know <laughs> that they they soloed or sorry they've climbed say El Cap, you know, 103 times. Yeah, and they know the dates for all of those. Yeah. I can't remember the dates of all of them. I don't know how many times I've climbed mm-hmm. El Cap, and I know it's way less than 100. Um, so th- 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 that kind of those kind of details escape mm-hmm. me, but the moments themselves, the experience, it, it, I definitely remember it really well okay and so when I when I went to um, 
solo Astro Man, um, it was, uh, I knew that I was, I had, I'd never thought of it before. So the previous time I had ever climbed, it was maybe, I can't remember, at least three years beforehand. And at that point, I never visualized anybody ever soloing. It seemed like way too hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just, it, I thought there was too many places where it was too insecure. And even though I'd done a fair bit of soloing, it was just, I hadn't even conceived of it. And so then I showed up in the valley this one year and I was just climbing a lot better. And, uh, you know, my sort of standard thing, I'd go soloing at, you know, the Cookie and Arch Rock and solo a ton of pitches that would add up to two or three Astromans. So, you know, the fitness wasn't really the issue at all. And uh, I didn't really have a serious plan as far as, like, when I would do it. And I didn't really go to the valley thinking that I would do it. But when I got there, just realized I was, you know, you know, in pretty good form and stuff. And so this one day, um, I went up and looked up at the cliff, and there's nobody up there, so I start soloing up. And, uh, and, and, and actually, before that, I thought, well, maybe I should do it with a rope beforehand and just, you know, make sure that everything's totally cool. And then I remember thinking, you know what? If I need to do that, I'm not ready. I should just blow it off and do something different. And so, at any rate, I went there this one time, and nobody's up there. So I climb up, and I get a few pitches up, and there's somebody, there's like kind of this alcove ledge thing, and there's somebody at the base of the first hard pitch. And I pull up over the ledge, and I'm staring at these guys, and they're like, what are you doing here? And I'm like, uh, my friends left some gear up here. I was just checking to see if it was here. I guess not. Uh, I'll see you guys. So I down climb back to the ground. And uh, so I came back a few days later, and, and actually, I, for me, like the historical thing about Yosemite has always been a big part of it. You know, it's a classic rock climbing area, but historically, it's super important in in all of climbing. And so, I I always thought that one of the most amazing rock climbs historically, as far as soloing goes, was John Backer's solo ascent of New Dimensions. And the next step after that was uh, um, Nabisco Wall that he soloed some years later. And then I thought that, man, you know, Astroman, that's like the huge step. There were some other steps maybe in between, but that was a huge step. So I did those earlier in the day. I, I went down, I sold New Dimensions as kind of like, uh, you know, I don't know, tip of the hat. Backer, right. I mean, Backer was, you can't believe how big of a hero he was for me. It's mm. just like, yeah, he had such a huge effect on me. So did that and then went up Valley and sold a Nabisco Wall and, okay well you know Astroman you know might be going into shade pretty soon I didn't want to go up there when it was blazing in the sun and so drove up to, up valley and got up to uh, Astroman looked up and it was in sun so I just hung out by the river and that was the hardest part of the whole day that was the crux hanging out trying to hold myself back and just sitting by the river by myself and looking up at it and then it went into shade and it, I remember just kind of sort of heading into the zone where Every footfall as I walked up through the talus was, it was kind of like a climbing move. I was just, I wanted to be in full climbing mode before I even touched the rock. And so kind of made my way up through the talus slope and I was already just trying to be like, yeah, like I say, in climbing mode, super precise, get up onto the rock. And I remember the first uh, hard pitch on that is, uh, is the boulder pitch. And it's called that because it's got technically the hardest moves on the whole climb. It's like a boulder problem. And although it's a, called a boulder problem pitch, 
if you blew it on that soloing, you're not going to stop after 15 feet. You'll go, I don't know, 200 or, you, yeah, you'll go a long way. So you have to make sure that you got that really solid. So I climbed up once or twice, uh, up and down, just checking out the moves and then went for it. I remember getting past that. It was, the, the main feeling I remember was just, I was released onto the upper wall. Because most of the upper climbing is endurance climbing. And if you have the Yosemite techniques, the weird flares and hand jamming and you know, thin finger cracks and stuff, um, it, a lot of it's kind of endurance-y type stuff. And I remember just, it was like the time of my life. I mean, it was just, there was nobody on the whole wall. There was nobody aid climbing off to the sides. There was no voices. I was totally by myself. And I remember just being so jacked up that I, I was climbing faster and faster and faster. And finally, about two-thirds of the way up, I realized, you know, I'm going a little bit too fast. I, I, I got to drink this in a bit. And so just before the changing corners pitch, which is probably nine pitches up mm -hmm. or something like that, I stopped. And I'm just, it's a pretty warm day. It's a summer day. So I'm just like in red Adidas running shorts, no shirt. And I stop and just take my shoes and set them beside me. And I'm looking across at Half Dome. And there's like those little East swifts that are flying about, making their little swift noises. And I'm like, this is why I started climbing. This is, takes me right back to the beginning of what I hoped climbing might be someday, where it's instinctive. It's not about conscious thought. It's like feeling like you belong in a spectacular environment. And so I hung out there for a while looking across at Half Dome, and then I put on my shoes and just loved every inch of the rest of the route. And it was just... It wasn't just a difficult route. It was like what I hoped that life could be like when I was a little kid. Yeah, I mean, when I was a kid, I loved watching adventure movies. My favorite ones were watching the old, the really old-fashioned Tarzan movies. I just loved them. And, you know, the whole guy swinging through the treetops, you know, in his loincloth and, you know, doing adventurous things. And being up on Astroman in running shorts and no shirt and and in a way rock climbing can kind of be like gymnastics and just to be swinging up through these overhangs by myself going at my pace and in that rhythm in that flow state that you know climbers love to get to and we only get to do it periodically and as well at that time Astroman was um, you know, things obviously change and different climbs become sort of focal points. At that time, Astroman was the long free route in the world. It was, it had more impact around the world than any other route. You know, those guys, you know, Kauk and, and Backer and, and John Long doing that, it had such an impact all over. It was the climb. And so for me, historically, there was, there was no second choice. It was, it was the one that just meant more than anything to me. And it was, um, like I say, it, it really felt like a, it felt like the Tarzan movies I came mm -hmm. from, the stuff that I'd, the, the life of adventure I'd hoped that I might be able to get to sometime when I was a little kid living up in rainy Canada. Um, all the things kind of came together. And, 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 and the interesting thing was, is the part that meant the most to me was when I stopped on a ledge and took off my shoes and just hung out for a while and just really took in where I was and how alone I was and alone in a really good way. That was, I was so happy that there was nobody else on the wall. I was really lucky mm -hmm. in that way. And then the other, and then the climbing was fantastic. And then, you know, reaching the summit and 
because I'd waited fairly late in the day to start up on the thing. You know, the sun was low in the sky, and I hung out up on top of Washington Column, which is you know the, the cliff that Astroman is on, and I just didn't want to come down in any sense of the word. I just never wanted to come down. I didn't right. want to go back to the valley floor. I wanted to just stay up there. <laughs> and so when you did get back to the valley floor, I mean, you know, was it just as simple as people were like, what would you do today, Peter? It was kind of like that. And it felt really weird because I felt like in a bit of an altered state. Mm-hmm. Not because I pushed so hard, because I really hadn't. I, I, when I got to stop, I had more energy than when I started. I just felt utterly jacked. And I was just walking back to my camp, and somebody just stopped me. And I don't know, maybe they saw that my eyes were just blazing or something. I, I'm not really sure, but they stopped and asked me, and they said, well, what, what did you just do? And so I just, I, did, I had no time to think. I didn't want to tell anybody, but I just didn't have any time to think, and I just blurted it out. And they're like, what, what? And then they started freaking out, and, and I took <laughs> off. And, and then the whole world's freaked out. <laughs> yeah. It, it was kind of sort of, yeah, pretty un- unexpected. I knew what it meant to me, but yeah, it, it, it turned out to be... Uh-huh. Um, a lot, lot of the stuff that I'd done in Yosemite prior to that was, was, was a lot more low-key. I, I was really into soloing sort of, you know, uh, link-ups mm-hmm. with a lot of uh, big moderate routes, you know, more like 5.9 and 5.10. So that was it was kind of a different thing, but yeah, I mean Yosemite. It's I think for a lot of people, it's it's really changed the way that um, it's been. Well, at the very least, it's been a really important part of their climbing as far as where it's taken them. Sure. Not that it ends up being the end all, but it it has an impact. It it no matter what, it is a fantastic place. Yeah. Even if you don't climb. <laughs> um, I'd like to kind of like. Finish up like talking a little bit more about soloing, mm-hmm. and uh, chronologically we'll come back a little bit mm-hmm. um, after that. But that I mean, we're talking about this moment, and you, mm-hmm. you know the way you talk about it, it's still like energizing you. Um, but obviously, you went on to continue having that as part of your sort of climbing repertoire, including yeah. doing those big link ups um, in the Sierras, yeah. um, the traverses and stuff. Is is soloing still a big part of of the way you climb? Yeah. I mean, you know, for, for me it was. Um, some people identify with being a certain type of climber, whether they're a sport climber or a boulder mm-hmm. or a solar. And I've never really, even though there's been years where I'm not even sure if I've tied in once, even though I've climbed a lot, and so I've basically been a soloist, um, there's been other years where I haven't really done very much of it. And it really depends on what I feel like doing. So, um, it, and, and part of it, a big part of it depends on where I am. If I lived in Yosemite, I would do a lot more. Right. Um, my main cragging area where I live, certainly for the fall, winter, spring, is the Owens Gorge. And, and although I've done a certain amount of soloing there, and I've actually probably done my hardest soloing there, a, a lot of the climbing, the rock is really good quality for the first 100 feet or so, maybe a bit more. And then above that, it gets chossier and chossier. So pretty much all the climbs, they go up and then you lower off. And so, yeah, right, so to solo uh, out so, is... So, yeah. you know, in Yosemite... You can just solo at the top of all these things. Or, yeah. Well, a lot of them. And so it depends on the area. And, you know, trips I've made to Australia, I've done a ton of soloing down there because in places like Arapiles and the Grampians, it makes a lot of sense to do that. And so um, for me, it's really been position dependent as far as the soloing I do. But also, I just really thought of myself not as a soloist, but mm-hmm. more as a climber. Mm-hmm. And so because of that, 
Like, I, I love the fact that climbing is different in different places. I wouldn't want it to be all, say, sport climbing, but I love sport climbing in some places. And then I like being in other places where it's run-out face climbing. Or sure. other places where it's all crack climbing. Or I like taking in, you know, the different types of things. So, I, And that was one of the reasons, actually going back a bit, why I never really got into the bolt wars or thinking that sport climbing was some kind of an evil. I just didn't want to see it everywhere. Sure. But I thought it was super fun right from the beginning. Right. But I, I liked the variety in climbing. I didn't want it to become generic. Mm -hmm. So uh, you, you like live in this, you know, pantheon of, <laughs> I mean, you know, I, again, like I'm going to embarrass you. I, I'm going to do that a few more times. But, you know, there's Backer and I know he was a great hero to you. Mm -hmm. And uh, the people who've risen up, at least in the media, to... Astro Man made you one of these people, at least in, in, in media's eyes. Um, and I'm sure you've been asked this before, but you know, now we've got Alex Honnold. Mm -hmm. And I mean, soloing things that I think perhaps even you might just like go, whoa, when he, he gets on this stuff. And I don't want to like spend a bunch of time on that, but what, what's your sort of comment on, on just who he is and what he's done with this, this thing that you were a big pioneer in, or at least moved forward, just like you said, there was new dimensions, and then there was this, and then Astro Man was a step. Well, he's made these more steps, yeah. so. You know, I got a ton of respect for Alex, mm -hmm. and it's really been fun to see the progression that he's made in all kinds of ways as far as who he is. That's a big part of it, but also where he's taken it. Um, I, I think one of the, in some ways, one of the bigger changes is, is how much the media has gotten into it. Right. And the whole being filmed while you're doing things. I mean, you know, there's, there's a number of things that come into that. And one of the main, probably the main thing is the distraction it is. If you are trying to perform at your very best and there's a cameraman swinging around beside you. I, I remember at times doing some soloing for the camera and having a cameraman swinging, or a cameraman swinging around above me and uh, knocking some rocks down and... It basically, it, was, it wasn't a great experience. Sure. So there's that being the, the distraction and the danger of it. Um, and then as well, for me, like I remember when I soloed Astro Man, and I soloed a few times, and, and I had people approach me like they really wanted to film me doing that. And I said, there's no way. This is too personal. Right. And they kind of shrugged their shoulders. I don't know if they really got it or not. For me, it was too important to have it filmed. And, uh, it, I mean, it might sound like a bit of a ridiculous thing, and it, I, I think probably it is, but the idea of filming something that is, you know, some of the most important things on a personal level, I mean, geez, if you were just, you know, getting together with the love of your life for the first time, and this is fantastic, right. and somebody <laughs> says, hey, kind of like do a sex video. You good with that? Um, you know, I don't think everybody would say yes as much as they might want to be on TV. And like I say, it is a bit of a ridiculous uh, comparison. But for me, that was what it was like when somebody was saying, I want to film you on Asterman. I'm like, no, this is, this is all mine. Right. Um, at times, climbing is a pretty selfish uh, pursuit and... For me, that's exactly what it is for mm -hmm. this. Mm -hmm. It belongs to me and nobody else. And it wasn't a matter of like, oh, you know, they're gonna, it's going to freak me out or anything like that. It was really just like, this is 
it's too important. Right. Having said that, I don't that this is not a diss on Alex. It's a different time now, and and I mean, hell, you look at snowboarders, and it's really standard. Say with snowboarding, mm-hmm. you know, they do the ratters stuff with the camera there. That's what goes on. Right. And for me, it was. I always kind of viewed soloing as the kind of thing where the reasons you do it are paramount. Mm-hmm. And so, if if that is the case, the the purity, the singularity of why you do it, is it's key to your success and to, and to keeping it safe. Muddying those waters by having a camera there, and uh, I, I guess I would say trying to look good for the for the camera is maybe overstating it, but. Basically, you you have to be aware that the camera is there, and and as well, there is there is. I remember there there was a big debate over in the Alps when people were starting to link big faces over there, um, big North faces over there, and and uh, some there was an argument made that if you do that and you're being filmed, basically it means that all you have to do is wave and the and the helicopter comes in and rescues you. Mm-hmm. The level of commitment is different. Sure. If there's a cameraman right beside you, and I, I know of situations where that has exactly happened, where the cameraman has swung over and clipped the guy in because t- it was feeling a little bit dodgy, it, it, it changes the whole nature of it. Sure. And, and, I, and I've heard that's, that's one of the things about documentaries is that if you're doing a documentary, no matter what, you've changed the environment just by being there. As much as you might sure. try to hide and try not to be involved, you have changed the environment just by being there. And, and I think if something means a lot to you and you're willing to sort of, you know, risk your life on something and it is all important to you, mm-hmm. the reasons you do it and the way that you do things, it is ultimately important as sure. far as how, you know, what, what it means to you in the long run. Mm-hmm. We're in this age now that, like, the debate doesn't even happen anymore in sure. terms of like filming only yeah. only people sort of our age and mm-hmm. or my age and your age is up kind of whisper about it but it's like i mean no one even talks about it anymore but you know even recently on the dawn wall like there there was you know it was a ground up ascent in a sense but there was no, you know if one of those guys had hurt themselves like they would have been in a hospital faster than if one of us hurts ourselves here right tonight here. yeah you know yeah. like Instantly, yeah. so yeah, I get what you're saying, but like it's it's gone yeah, no, out it, the window. It, it, you know? It's 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 even gotten to the point where if you haven't filmed it, well, did it happen? You can't even prove that you did it. Maybe you didn't do it. Like yeah. in other words, it's not even valid. Yeah. Not just that it's like a comparable <laughs> right. way of doing things. Right. It's it, it's a lesser way of doing mm-hmm. things. Having said that, there's still a ton of young guys. Going out, getting after it, not being filmed, doing super rad stuff, mm-hmm. and I, I, I do not want to put forth the idea that oh, young guys today, that you yeah, know, right, right, today, yeah, I got you, man. You know, they don't even yep. get it anymore, and that is so not the case. Right, right. And with Alex, he's just a good pro. He's making probably more money than you know, like because the general public res his. His climbing resonates more with the general public than somebody climbing 515C. That's just a weird number that right. the general public doesn't even get. So 
he's, no, a, it's, he's, it's, he's a good yeah. pro, and that is not a diss at all. Right. He's he's a he's a guy who just simply gets that side of it, and he is doing rad stuff all over the place, and and not just once in a while. He just he's shown that this is not just something that he can do once and then it just basically blows a fuse and he can never do something mm -hmm. like that again. He just is able to get out there and do it over and over again. I got a ton of respect for that guy. We're, we're, we've been doing this a long time, but yeah. I, I, I got to keep going. So <laughs> I hope you don't mind because there's a few other things. Um, plus, I, you know, I want to catch us up to, to sort of your, your modern career because you're not slowing down. So, but um, going back a little ways, you talk about backer, you know, even as you, you know, you became a guy that could stand there with him. You didn't have to walk around him, so to speak. And, and I would assume well, you came... Well, I was lucky enough to become friends with him. Yeah, and that's what I was going to say. Is you guys became friends. And then I've heard it sort of... It's almost like you've described, like, sort of getting called up to, you know, to the big leagues to, to, uh, to do the link-ups, to do mm -hmm. the, the El Cap and the Half Dome. And then mm -hmm. I think it was afterwards, a couple of years, that you did... The nose in the South A. Mm -hmm. That was also with John, right? No, no, it was with okay. Dave Schultz. Oh, that's right. Yeah. All right, so let's back up. But the the, the, the link up, you know, this this speed climbing on El Cap, this mm -hmm. link up thing, it it blew up in the decade after this. But mm -hmm. the 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 El Cap Half Dome link up was was again this. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was a huge opening of a door. Yeah. And and you know, I've reflected a lot of times that a lot of these things. There, there's like the talent is there but somebody somewhere has to kick the door open and then mm -hmm. all of a sudden everybody yeah. rushes through you yeah. guys did that yeah. so can you can you talk a little bit about you know that that idea of like you know being tapped if you will like to yeah. do this thing yeah i mean i'd been dreaming for a few years about the idea of doing the nose and half dome in a day and i was doing a lot of link ups but solo of like multiple long routes, you know, five nine, five ten in Yosemite, and mm -hmm. I just thought it was the greatest thing. Nobody else was doing it, and I really felt like this is like the funnest thing I've ever done, and nobody else is doing it. This is so cool, and I wasn't telling anybody about it. I mean, some of it leaked out, but um, I remember I hearing from one friend at one point that they found a Canadian nickel at the base of Higher Cathedral Rock. And they told this person who became my friend later that, you know, I think it's that guy Peter Croft because I hear he's been linking up some roots. I don't really know anything about it. And it was kind of like this mysterious thing. And for me, I just kind of figured, you know, it's not like cutting edge rock climbing. It's not really that big of a deal. But it was kind of leaking out. And But because I, I was so often at that point, I was just going to Yosemite to just go soloing and not soloing short routes. So I wasn't in the main... The, the popular cragging areas. I was just going around doing these long routes all over the place. I didn't think really anybody knew about it, so I felt like I was just kind of under the radar, just having fun. And uh, then, and so I'd started to think like the ultimate thing, and not as a solo thing, but um, you know, because I mean, even now nobody's talking about doing the nose and half dome, like that kind of a link up all free, particularly well, the nose. I mean, obviously Alex has done half dome, but free climb the nose without a rope it's, so at any rate w the, a roped up ascent of both of those I just nobody had done it nobody had tried it at that point and I remember thinking boy I'd love to do this but I mentioned a few of my Canadian friends not asking if they wanted to do it but just saying I'm 
this is what I'm really thinking of doing. They're like, you're dreaming, Peter. You know, you've never even done the nose in a day. I'm like, yeah, yeah, but I kind of think, you know, it might be, might be good for something like this. And I knew that th- at that point, John Backer was the guy. He was the golden boy of Yosemite climbing. He had been in these Gillette Razor commercials and that kind of stamp. That was the final stamp of like, he is the guy. And I didn't know him. At that point, I was still, you know, walking around him in the parking lot. I didn't, he was, he is, again, his force field was too great. And, uh, well, he, and, he seemed like maybe a diff, maybe a little difficult guy to, to you know, that's get what into. I, that's what I'd always heard, right. that he could be competitive and arrogant and stuff like that. And in, in the whole time that I knew him over the years, he was never like that mm-hmm. with me. Okay. And maybe part of it was like, I never, even it, it never even occurred to me to be competitive with him. Sure. He was, I was, I admired him too much. But uh, at any rate, so th- I showed up in the valley this one year, and I'm just feeling like I'm in really good form. And uh, but I, I, I know I can't walk up to him and ask him. I'm just, I'm too much of a chicken shit. And so we we drove down from Canada, pretty much 24 hours straight driving, and we before going to set up our camp, we stop at Reed's area which is kind of before you really get to the main part of Yosemite Valley, and pull into the parking lot, and I don't know how it worked out. So we've just driven down from Yosemite. Nobody knows we're coming. I mean, it's not like we're going to announce that, you know, the Canadians are coming. And so we just pull out our packs, and all of a sudden, Backer's four, black forerunner just pulls into the parking lot. And he jumps out, and he comes walking over, and I'm like, holy shit, do I make eye contact? Or, like, how do, how do I handle this? And he walks up to me, he goes, hey, Peter, want to go soloing? And I'm like, uh, uh, sure. And so we head up to the cliff, and as soon as we're out of earshot of the others, of my friends back at the car, he goes, hey, I got this idea. You want to go try link up El Cap and Half Dome? And it was, it was, I mean, it sounds weird. It was like the hand of God. It was like the, the planets aligning, like everything all at once. It was like this moment where so often life seems so random, like occurrences. It's just, it's just crap that happens. You know, this was the universe aligning itself just for me. It was the moment. And it was this revelation that at that point, I can't say I really even cared if I was going to succeed. The universe had set itself up so that I was primed for my best chance of success of not just like a cool thing to do in climbing, but the thing I'd wanted to do more than anything for the last few years. This was the most important thing on the planet, which basically makes it the most important thing in the universe Mm -hmm. for a young climber. And so I'm just like, yeah, this... (laughs) Obviously, I said yes. I probably mm-hmm. just stuttered a whole bunch and um, <laughs> embarrassed myself in front of him. But yeah, I was super psyched. And then kind of the one stumbling block was he told me I had to take two full rest days. At that time, I never took rest days. And uh, so two full rest days. And he says, yep. And, uh, and I'm like, okay, well, I just got, I'm just going to do a little bit of easy soloing and go for a few runs. And he goes, no, no, no. You lay in your tent, you don't do anything, you sleep as much as you can, and you eat as much as you can. And I'm like, no way. Two days of rest, I'm going to be out of shape, eat as much as I can, I'm going to be fat. 
I can't do this. And the only reason your, I, I your did it. understanding of physiology is a little yeah. elementary at this point. Oh, yeah. 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 No, no. It's fully caveman. <laughs> and so the only reason I did what he said was because it was backer. And uh, so I did what he said. I just lay in my tent and I had almost no money. So I just like lined the wall of my t pup tent with uh, boxes of Nabisco crackers because that's all I could afford. And I would just eat crackers until I passed out, sleep for a while, wake up, eat more crackers. I mean, it was really that kind of uh, creepy and boring and weird all at the same time. And, uh, and then the day came and it was, it was one of those magic days where I started out feeling really good and it only got better. I got stronger and stronger throughout the day, and I just, by the time I got to the top of Half Dome, I felt like I ripped the top of the dome off. I just, and, and, and John was, on, we were both on the same momentum thing going along, and uh, basically, you know, we started at midnight, you know, slunk past sleeping people on, on El Cap, holding the cams against our legs so they wouldn't make noises, so we tiptoe past them while they're snoring away. One moment where it was kind of semi-epic, was way up near the top. We just passed um, a party of two and a party of three um, up by Camp 5, so we're about 2,000 feet up, and we were maybe like a pitch or a pitch and a half above them, and I just followed a pitch, and I was swinging to the lead, and so I got up to John, grabbed a few cams, and I jumped up onto this block just above the belay, and it was like maybe five feet high and weighed hundreds and hundreds of pounds. Jumped up onto it, and the whole thing just started falling out backwards. And so we're in this huge dihedral, which means that the block comes off, it goes down, it's going to ricochet back and forth down this dihedral, busting into pieces. There's basically going to be cannon shot, firing in all kinds of directions. People are going to die. And uh, John, he's dressed in like white cotton shorts and, and white t-shirt. And I'm, as I feel the thing falling out backwards, I jump off back down onto the ledge. And as I'm jumping down, I'm, it's going into slow motion. I'm thinking, I'm gonna, people are going to die today because of me. And as I'm jumping back down onto the belay ledge, there's this white blur, and it's John jumping up to push this huge block back into place. And if you've ever watched Superman movies, that was a Superman movie. It was, like, awesome. I mean, I thought the guy was a climbing god, and I couldn't believe I was climbing with the guy. This was just confirmation. This was, in, in a way, kind of to be expected. It blew me away, but it was kind of to be expected. That's what happens when, you know, climbing gods enter the picture. They do stuff like that. Mm -hmm. You know, I just about totally screwed the pooch and killed people, and he just saved the day. And then to top it all off, so I've completely fucked up. And I've, I've created this incredibly dangerous situation, and I'm just uh, apologizing to him, just like, can't believe I did that. That's so incredibly stupid. And John's just like, totally loose block. Could have happened to anybody. I wouldn't worry about it, man. Just go for it. Like, he could have easily just like a little sarcastic comment and mm -hmm. just driven me into the ground. And instead, he was just like, and I've encountered that a number of times over the years from John, how he would just not make a big deal about it in, in like trying to make you feel better, but at the same time make you feel better. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, we all screw up. Right. Let's move forward. You know, I would have done the same thing. He was such an incredibly cool guy. 
certainly always to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't speak to, you know, how he always was with other people. But, sure. um, but at any rate, and after that, we just charged to the summit and uh, going up on Half Dome. Just by that time, everybody's awake. Right. So we've got to pass a bunch of parties on Half Dome and a couple of times running across. Most of the time, people are really cool. They see how fast we're climbing and they're all cool. But a couple of times running across people who don't want us to pass. But in each of those occasions, John and I were moving together and we're about to switch climbing blocks and John's about to switch into the lead. And uh, so they tell me I can't go past. I'm a no-name nobody. And, and John, Canadian. And Canadian. You're quite polite. <laughs> yeah. So John comes up, and John is super polite. And they start to say the same thing to him. And they're like, and it, again, at that time, there was this this series of uh, Gillette Razor commercials and John was the guy in the commercial and they would start to say yeah you can't go by we just don't do things like that and they realize who he is and yeah you can go by and sure. I'm on the other end of the rope so I get to go too but uh, and uh, we had one incident up higher where they let John go by and the, the Blair tried to get in my way and leaned out which created a bad situation because John was way run out knowing that there's no way I'm going to fall on a 5'9 chimney but the Blair's leaning out so far that I can't chimney in the back. I've got to do this really hard stemming out on the outside, and I've got to try to climb by the guy. It was kind of a weird situation. He wouldn't look at me, but he was being a little bit of a dick. And so as I'm thrashing around to get by him, I'm doing this desperate dynamic stemming to get around the back of this guy. And at one point, he's leaning further and further back to get in my way. I'm getting more and more thrashy, and finally, as I'm just getting by his head, I look the other direction to make sure a smear is just right, wind up to throw my foot really high on the opposite wall, throw my foot way up right at the moment when he leans back a little bit further. And so I fully connected with his head and like basically kicked his head like a soccer ball really hard. And he just kind of whiplashed back into the corner and, and I kept going. And, you know, being a Canadian, I apologize, right. but <laughs> secretly I was actually pretty psyched about right. that. And then... A bit higher, we run into some Germans, and they're all psyched that at first they think I'm John Backer because my hair's all bleached from the sun, right, and right. I, I look a bit like John, maybe I don't know. And they're all psyched, and I'm like, oh, sorry, you know, you guys, I'm not John Backer, and they're like looking all bummed. I'm like, he's just down below; he's on the other right, end of the right. rope. He'll be here in a second. They are like, like the most ardent fans. Mm-hmm. They're so psyched. John comes up, and they're trying to feed us all kinds of German sausage and stuff like that, bratwurst and stuff. And then a, a thunderstorm comes, and there's like lightning and stuff. And, and normally that would feel like something that's getting in your way. And instead, it's like giving us energy. I don't know if you've ever seen the Thor, recent Thor movie. And the lightning actually sure. is giving them energy. That's what it was like for us. Nice. We were Thor, and the lightning was fully just giving it to us. So we're just charging up the last pieces, the last pitches, sorry. And uh, then we, we get up on top, the storm rolls away and we're standing up on top and a perfect double rainbow forms no you're making that part up no if you ever meet a guy called Phil Bard he took some pictures for one thing he got some pictures of the rainbow but also um, I hadn't seen some pictures for a few years and I had kind of forgotten about the whole thing I was so jazzed and he was talking about the double rainbow and then I remembered and then he showed me the pictures but yeah a perfect double rainbow I mean again it was universe aligning mm-hmm. nobody else has to believe it I don't really care about that part of it 
but for me, it was the truth. So, was this something that you? I mean, you said that backer like kind of got you aside to tell you about the plan. Was it? You know, did you guys sort of do it? You know, as quietly as possible, or was there? Yeah, you know, we were there some lead up to it. Well, I've I've never liked for myself at least. I've never liked to sort of broadcast, you know, some big plan. It's just kind of like, you know, if you really want to talk about stuff, after the fact. Sure. You know, before the fact, you haven't done anything. Right. Shut up. Right. You know, that doesn't really mean anything. Right. Um, so I think it leaked out maybe a little bit, but I certainly didn't tell anybody. And did you guys do, in, I mean, you'd mentioned you'd never done the nose in a day or anything. Uh -huh. did, did you do any prep work? Or the, were one, you... the one prep thing we did, I hadn't done Half Dome, mm -hmm. and I, I'm not too sure if John had. Maybe John had. We went up and we did that just to kind of see how we climbed together because mm -hmm. we hadn't really done anything. I think we sold a little bit that one day at Reed's. Um, but we hadn't really done anything big, and we wanted to see how that, that went. And so we just went up and did Half Dome one day, and that went super smoothly. And then I can't remember, like a few days later, we just went up and did, you know, the, the works. Amazing. Yeah, it, it wasn't, you know planned really big or we didn't go up on on the nose beforehand because i'd done that before and so just once but i knew basically what right. was up with that and right. we figured half dome was a good way to sort of just kind of see how the you know doing the the simul climbing and stuff like that felt mm -hmm. yeah you know you're talking about yosemite history and this mm -hmm. like these doors getting kicked open and, mm -hmm. and you know like the first kind of free climbing on you know el cap like it's kind of weird because lynn's the center of the nose, like kind of cracked it, but mm -hmm. for some reason, I don't know, it, it, it didn't quite bust the door open. No, it, it, yeah. yeah, it really didn't. And I think, um, I don't know, there's probably all kinds of reasons for that. I think one of the reasons is she's a girl. Right. And so for somebody else to come along and go, yeah, um, you know, I'm going to do the second, the second uh, free ascent of the nose, it's just like, okay. She did it one time in a few days. Then she did it once in a day. It's just like some guy going up there, the best he can do is maybe as good as she did, but she already did it, and she's a girl. Yeah. She's not even very tall. Right. Like there, there wasn't like a huge upside mm -hmm. for a lot of guys because I, I, I wasn't actually even thinking of it. Um, but I talked to people who were kind of in the running, and they're just like you could tell just through their conversation. They weren't – they didn't spill it out outright mm -hmm. but it was kind of like the upside wasn't really big mm -hmm. like if they were to do the first free ascent of it there was a big upside but the idea that a small girl I mean and everybody knew Lynn was more than just a small girl sure but it was the the, the, the people who were kind of in the running it was kind of like right. you know okay she's already done it in a day like she had made this kind of ultimate statement mm -hmm. like Right, like she she opened the door and then closed it. In a way, yeah. in a way, she kind of closed it with the one day right. ascent. Right. Like if a guy could have figured, okay, well, I can work on it a bunch, and you know, maybe I can do it in a day, and then that'll be, you know, that'll be the next step. Right. Well, what's the next step? I mean, even though Tommy has now free climbed it, he never. It, it, I mean, eventually he actually did that with Freerider, I think. Sure. And that was, I guess, sort of a big step. But as far as the nose in itself, it's just. Once she's done it in a day, yeah. I mean, like, you know, if you're a competitive person, what are you going to do? Well, the, the reason <laughs> she's I, already done right. it. The reason I brought it up is I was just curious, and 
I, I when Randy was on here, because um, you know he was also in this this kind of like uh, free climbing era, this the yeah. '80s, you know, like yeah. when that was really again being sort of created in a way, like how are we gonna do this? You know, I I asked him and and he he found it to be amusingly accusatory of like, well, why weren't you up on El Cap free climbing? Mm-hmm. You know, like what what would, what was the sort of the disconnect with the idea of like what was the disconnect with like trying to free any of those routes had, had that mm-hmm. I mean were people talking about that were you like wow I wonder if we could free big parts of El Cap yeah, or? you know I, I think if, if you delve into what free climbing El Cap has become now mm-hmm. you know the extreme example is the Don Wall the amount of time and Tommy's talked about it how it was basically impossible to do that ground up or at least without drilling zillions of holes all over the place. Could be, you'd be constantly going into dead ends. And, right. And uh, so now the typical thing is, is you, you go up to top of El Cap, you set up a camp, and then you lower down and, and uh, mini traction for like days, sometimes weeks, sometimes sure. months. Years. We're working on stuff. And so you need that mindset, or at least for most people, you know, right. if you're not like somebody like Yuji or someone like that who's you know has the ability to go try to on-site you know some one of these clients but even for the people who are like maybe going up to on-site something a lot of times they need a subby who's going to sure. you know you have to so you need to enlist a subby to jumar up behind you and be your support guy it's not the same as just like you know you and me going up and figuring ah oh, let's go do some big climb on washington right. climb or, or whatever it is and just go climb. Both of us just swing leads. Mm-hmm. Like that almost n- never happens on El Cap. Right. It's, that's just, and, and if it does happen, it's people who have already spent the time doing the other style beforehand. Sure. And so are you willing to do that? It's, it's a style of climbing where, you know. Like at that time, it just, that, that wasn't what people were no, interested no, or no, what you no, were no, interested well, in. And as well, it was, it was really a big change when people finally did start doing that. Right. They'd have the camp up there, sure. they'd carry a thousand feet of rope, and right. they'd start mini-tractioning. For me, not just from a laziness point of view, it also sounds really scary, because I don't mind the exposure when I climb up into you know, a wild spot, but to just wrap o- hike up to the top and wrap over the edge. Yeah. Um, but so it's a different type of thing. Cool. And so um, I think the idea of just going up and just doing the best I can from the bottom sounds pretty fun and right. you know maybe sometime I'll I'll go try to do that but I think there's too much I like climbing too much to put all the effort into hiking a bunch of ropes up and all the practicing mm-hmm. um, yeah I don't mind trying really hard on routes and falling a bunch of times but I don't know, the whole, you know, and, and nowadays with, with the popular routes on El Cap, sometimes, you know, there's like fixed camps, there's fixed ropes coming down from up above, and it's um, that kind of uh, circus atmosphere doesn't really appeal to me. Right. And, and, and having said that, that's what I've been told. I haven't sure. been up there, you know, trying to free one of these routes and, and encountered that, that situation. Well, we're, we're like way beyond what I would normally have done with one of these, <laughs> but I can't stop... But we just have to skip, I mean, you and, and Dave Schultz, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, the nose and South Dana Day, mm-hmm. which you corrected me. Yeah. Um, but you, you guys were an amazing partnership for, yeah. for a lot of years, which we could do another hour about. <laughs> um, and I don't want to short sh- uh, ship Dave because he was such a big yeah. part of that scene as well. 
Um, but I do. We do have to wrap this thing up. Yeah. So I guess the last thing uh, maybe is, you know, I started with talking about your attitude towards climbing. Mm -hmm. It's sort of exuberant. It still is there. And, you know, you found this home in Bishop. You, you mm -hmm. found this, at least in the last decade or so, mm -hmm. this, yeah. the Sierras as being this great yeah. canvas to, to do roots yeah. in. And So what, where's climbing at right at this moment for you? Like, So, uh, you know, I've, I've already said that I, I don't really consider myself a soloist mm -hmm. or a sport climber or a boulder, although I really enjoy all those things. So I've really enjoyed just kind of going where the fun is and it sounds like a flippant way to describe like what I want out of climbing but I think when, you, when you're in the place doing the thing you most want to do that's when your 100% is actually more like 150% that's when you can actually give more than you ever thought you could if you're just doing the best at what you think you should do or what you're supposed to do or whatever then it's, it really does kind of cap off at 100% but when you're inspired, it, I think it really takes you to another place. It just seems like at times I've been, I feel really, you know, I'm pretty decent, but almost mediocre. And then every once in a while I get inspired. I see something that I just can't believe what I see. And I just go to another level. And for some people, they're able to, always, they're cons they consistently on site at their top level. And I've never been like that. I'm always up and down. And at times I'm kind of like, I think I'm just kind of a crappy climber. And then I see something that inspires me. And I, I don't know why, but my level goes to a different place. And I, I, I like it like that because it's a total surprise. Because mm -hmm. I think I suck and then for a brief moment I don't suck. <laughs> and it, and it's, it, just, you just feel, it feels like you're having one of those magic days. So it is, it is really wonderful. And so back to your question, it's different things at different times. Mm -hmm. So... You know, I've done like, you know, uh, the short Yosemite finger cracks and then Yosemite link ups. And then I've done big traverses in the Sierras. And then the last number of years, a lot of what I've been doing is just looking for cool faces to free climb in, in the high country. You know, you, you're away from like the hotbed of Yosemite. Um, and as well in the summertime, you know, it's cooler temperatures. And I've just, I really enjoyed that. But having said that, you know, I, I do that during the summertime. I love going sport climbing with, my, with all my friends in, in, in the wintertime. Just before coming out here, I had a really good bouldering session. I think that's more than anything. It's the variety mm -hmm. that, you know, just, it, it makes climbing more than just an activity or a sport. It's life mm -hmm. because it just changes all the time. It changes with the seasons. Um, it changes from being like a solitary activity where it's introspective to hanging out with my friends and just laughing our heads off at how lame we are or how much we struggle on easy stuff and how once in a while we have one of those days. All right. I think that's the final word. Okay. I really appreciate it. Um, you've given me way more time than, than I <laughs> blah, actually... Blah, 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 blah. No, it's fantastic. I mean, I just uh, totally appreciate it um, that we finally got to sit down again you know, definitely a seminal character, a, a hero of mine. And when wow. I started climbing, I think you influenced my generation a great deal. Um, 
and uh, I thank you for that, and I thank, well, thank you for sitting down. <laughs> I don't know about the hero part. I've always felt like the biggest poser when I have to do an interview or, or something like this, or the poster signing, which it sounds like I wiggle out of. Yeah, you just wiggle the, off at this the poster point. signing. I want to apologize to any of the Red Rock uh, Rendezvous people who are waiting yeah, for Peter Croft's signed you know, poster. Um, just as, email as, me. As much as I like to do lots of different types of things, I actually can't be in two different places at the same time. So No, only maybe what John Baffert could have pulled that off. <laughs> All right, well, thanks a lot, Peter. Hey, super fun. All right, folks, thanks for listening. And I want to thank Peter Croft again for sitting down. He's not always enthusiastic to do those sorts of things, but I think he warmed up to it, and I totally appreciate his time. Appreciate your time, too. And I want to mention, it's kind of become sort of a staple on the show to give Canadians a little bit of guff. But I want you to know, Canadians, that it comes from my heart. And in fact, there was a time when I thought of myself as an honorary Canadian. Just a few years where the great white north filled my soul. So hey, everybody, including you Canadians, don't forget to check your nod, eh? This is where the DJ talks. Don't say anything. Okay. Oh, beauty, go. Okay. Good day and welcome to our single. I'm Bob McKenzie and this is my brother Doug. How's it going, eh? Beauty, eh? Yeah, I like that. Okay. Okay. okay, everyone, this record was my idea. Get out! It was. You're lying. He hose hit here just sort of rid on my coattail. Why are you doing this? It was our idea together, right? Yeah, okay. Yeah. Okay. We agreed to, to say that, but... Oh, take off! Yeah, yeah, he's good. Okay, so good day. Our topic today is music. That's right, like because my brother and I are now experts in the field. Yeah, eh? right, because we're a band now. And, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, so. except for him, I'm a band. Oh, how can you do that? Making me look bad. You're such a hosehead. Yeah, well, take off. Take off to the great white north. Take off. It's a beauty way to go. Take off to the great white Listen to this, it's coming. You know what it is? What? It's a drum solo. Okay, everyone, like, this is me on the drums, Oh, eh? get out. It is not. You're it not. is so. Stop I lying, learned. will you? Take off, eh? Oh. Take off to the great white north. Take off. It's a beauty way to go. Take off to the great white north. Take off. It's a beauty way to go. Take off. Beauty, eh? Like magic, eh? It's yeah. coming in. Well, that's like... It's like it was sung by angels. Hey, Jose. Yeah, what? Guess what? What? It's over. Take hey, off. That no, can't be. It is. Yeah, it is. Because I, well, hit records are short. Like, no way. Yeah, they're not that long. Okay. So that's our topic for today. So good day. Good day. Such a hoser. There's no way I'll ever do 
another record with you, Hoser. Yeah. Okay, that's fine. I'll do a solo album. Fine, and you'll be looking for me yeah, like I on another not. label. Oh, now everybody's gone. Good so, day. Good day. So, like, take off to the great white north. Beauty. Beauty. Take off. It's a beauty way to go. Jeez. Take off, you hosers. Hey. Getty, we like to thank you for coming on uh, the album and singing on the hit single. Well, it was my pleasure, eh? Like, I wish you guys, like, lots of success and everything. <laughs> Beauty. Thanks, Thanks Getty. a lot, eh? Oh, That's great. You're welcome.